welcome to another episode of Reptile Fight Club. So, uh, yeah, today we got a, a good show for you. Um, we're we're uh, going to be uh, having a fun discussion with uh, Chris Chaffin, so topic that he suggested. So, um, But yeah, we'll kind of kick it off with a little chit-chat, assuming uh, Ruby can quiet down there. I think I'm good. You're back. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Apologies. No worries. No worries. Wow. What's going on with you, man? (sighs) Not much. Um, (laughs) That was a long sigh there. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, you know, there's always a lot going on. Um, Busy, you know, um, but good busy. Uh, Yeah, you know, starting to feed outdoor stuff. I, I, Mm -hmm. uh, I got that. Cl- I got the the uh, eggs out of the coastal female again this year. So mm-hmm. I put them in the incubator. Oh, and, I saw that. Yeah. So so that was kind of cool. Um, That's great. Yeah. So I I I, I don't want to jinx anything else. So I'm, I'm just <laughs> not saying anything else. So. <laughs> nice. Yeah. That's. Uh... That's cool though. I'm I'm excited for to see how things go for your your other outdoor critters. But um, I got another clutch of eggs, uh, children's pythons. So nice. Those are incubating. Not a bad clutch, but um, from an older female. I think she was born in the 2000s at some point. I can't remember the exact date, but um, went out went and checked out uh, Lucas's uh, band. Lucas Lee. He was playing uh, in Salt Lake and. We went down uh, to Salt Lake for a, a lacrosse game. You know, it's like a, what, an hour and a half, two-hour drive for us. And then um, we stayed, you know, Heidi and I got some dinner. It was nice to have just me and her uh, after the game. And uh, and and then checked out Lucas's band. It was re- They were great, like really good, uh, good music. So check out Finish Ticket if you're uh, interested to see to hear uh, Lucas Lee's uh, I guess it's not his band but he's in the band <laughs> helping yeah. him out uh, for their tour dates but yeah it was really fun to watch him in his element and it's a nice small venue that's always kind of cool when it's you know so so small but um, yeah check them out if they're in your area and then I don't know what else is going on We oh Lucas defended his master's thesis so he uh, passed with flying colors. He's the latest uh, masters of, I think it's zoo science. I forgive me if I'm wrong there, but under uh, Zach Lofman. So another one completed. Uh, the only one, the other, only other one I know of his uh, students is uh, Casey Cannon. He's in the middle of his degree as well. So kind of cool, but yeah, good stuff. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Good. Nice. It's good. Yeah. The blackhead eggs are still going strong, so knock on wood. Hopefully, another month or so, and we'll start seeing some babies hatch out of there. That would be nice. That would be nice. Yeah, that would be nice. Moved a bunch of inlands last week, so making my way down to the the last of the inlands. So, and they sure went quick. And there's still quite a few people that are anxious to get some. I apologize that. The uh, supply did not match the demand this year, and hopefully, so funny. Uh, have some more coming up. Yeah, I, I I don't know. I think it's a, a kind of a mixed product of uh, people 
figuring out the, how cool they are, you know, being able to maybe see one in person, um, hearing, you know, people like Eric and Owen talk about them and that kind of thing. I think that definitely yeah. gets the word out, but they're, they're one of the cooler carpets for sure. They are definitely are. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, I don't really think they've changed that much in price. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, yeah. it's a good, it's a good, uh, I don't know. I like them. <laughs> I like them. Yeah. They're cool. I got that one pair from you a while back. Huh? Yeah. That was, uh, it was nice to, to have those from you. <laughs> those, they were all primed and ready to go and yeah. spread right off the bat there. So, um, man, I'm, I'm a little out of it. had some dental work done today, so that was not fun. <laughs> I didn't expect to come out of there missing a, was it, but. was it, uh, from like pain all of a sudden you're just like, Oh my gosh, I got to go in or yeah. Or? Like it, well, that was a couple months ago, but I was too busy of course to go into the dentist. So I've just been so, living with a, so a wobbly you, crown, but so be honest, yeah. Did, did you know this moment was coming and you just kind of been putting it off or, or, did, or were you genuinely caught by surprise? I, I suspected, but I wasn't sure because it hurt, you know, for, for a bit before I left for France. And then um, it kind of stopped like it. So it was, you were good all through. But I, well, I still couldn't like chew very well on that side. So I was kind of favoring <laughs> the other side, which is okay. not a good sign, you know. Yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I suspected something was wrong. But then I thought he'd just kind of pop off the crown, maybe, I don't know, do something, fill something in there and then put it back on. But no, he crunched it out and smashed it up. It was my crown with the Australia uh, painted on it. So it's kind of cool. It's uh, sad to lose that. I guess that matches my uh, broken trips to Australia this year. So, Ouch. <laughs> my but, goodness! Yeah, my well, goodness! It's it's expensive to get over there, and those tickets I are about know. double the price or more. So kind of crazy. Yeah. But so if I'm talking funny or you hear me uh, lisping a lot, that's uh, I'm. <laughs> that's just that us. No, <laughs> that's just us. No, yeah. you you sound fantastic. <laughs> Yeah. Oh man, I, work is finally slowing down a little bit, and I can nice. kind of catch up a bit. Got a new computer though, and that's never fun to try to migrate everything over and get the new one functioning like the old one did. So, still having a little bit of hiccups and headaches with that. But what do you do? You go to a cloud-based server. Yeah. Well, that's most of my stuff is on the cloud, but. And it was being problematic accessing the cloud with the program we use. So, but I think I've got everything worked out. I don't know. Max are fun, but <laughs> they can be a pain in the neck sometimes. Did you have to call some people, have them do some things? Uh, fortunately, not yet. <laughs> Our IT guy is—he's an interesting character, but he—he'll come and just you know spend good hour chatting with you you know and then spend two minutes fixing your problem <laughs> so you got to kind of plan <laughs> so i got you he's a great he's a really nice guy like he's a great yeah. guy but just yeah he's he seems <laughs> to have a lot of time on his hands <laughs> I'm like, how does how does one get this uh, job here? Not, a bad, not a bad gig <laughs> i like that yeah. yeah but i i do like the guy yeah good yeah and i say good for him that's awesome yeah 
<sighs> Should have gone into IT, I guess. <laughs> I enjoy the science, though. It's been fun. I don't know. I've got a master's student uh, defending next week, so getting another student out there. She's She's got a spot in uh, North Carolina to finish out a PhD, so she's really sharp, sharp gal, so it'll be, be fun uh, to have. Well, not going to be fun to have her gone because she does really good work, so it's going to kind of suck to lose her, but what do you do? Yeah. Got to... All the the best and brightest leave. <laughs> uh, maybe we'll, we'll get her back here someday. She's you know native to the area, so maybe hopefully ho- hopefully that's how institutions of higher learning work. Though yeah, you got to get them out of there at some point. Yep, yeah. And she's I mean she thought she was gonna have to do another semester. I'm like, oh no, no, you're you're good, you're solid. You did nice. you did a lot of work, and she got a lot of good work done in a short amount of time. So. And her project worked. I mean, she found she she found out what she was looking for. So, yeah, wasn't sweet bad at all. Yeah, sweet. Yep. Well, uh, trying to think if there's anything else going on in the world of reptiles. Uh, Rob sent me a message over with a weird blue tongue. It's over in Ireland or England, somewhere over there, in a pet shop, and it's like this, you know, like a. Leukistic looking Maruki uh, blue tongue or something. Um, so, kind of interesting what's out there. Yeah, I, he's like, you know, what do you think of this? I'm like, man, eh, looks white. I don't know. <laughs> like, I, I don't. I don't know. I don't. <laughs> I don't pay. Uh, keep keep too close tabs on the blue tongue yeah. market or morphs or whatever. But yeah, but I don't know. It's always good to chat with. Uh, with Rob, <laughs> with Bob Brock, yeah, he's, Bobby he's, Pebble, he's got much more experience in in that area than I do. Like all the, he's he's a wealth of knowledge. That guy, old Bobby Pebbles, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> I still think that's my favorite nickname uh, from Schmitty, <laughs> Bobby Pebbles. That's, uh, makes me laugh every time I hear it. Uh, yeah, all right. Nice. <laughs> Without further ado, <laughs> let's uh, get into our uh, topic here. I guess, uh, Chris, thanks for joining us. You, uh, you there? <laughs> I can see he's on, but I can't hear him. Um, I thought we were good with the uh, no no issues. <laughs> he came on; we could hear him and chat with him and see him, but his uh, picture went away, and now we can't hear him. So. Mean. I guess we can. <laughs> he might have to drop out and come back in or, or something. But um, so yeah, uh, so we've got we, <laughs> we've got with us uh, Chris Chaffin from Copperhead Reptilia. At least we had him with us. Hopefully he's yeah uh, he's still he's, I I can see the mute button going off and on. So yeah, he's <laughs> he's he's that, he, he he's putting in us. work. <laughs> he's putting in his best effort. Whatever's going on over yeah, there. Yeah, not so. sure. Uh, What's happening on here? Yeah, we, we were we were definitely doing better here, like yeah, <laughs> five ten minutes ago. Yeah. Um, so uh, Chris is from Copperhead Reptilia. So he uh, reached out to us on uh, Instagram and had an idea for a topic. So thought we'd have him come on and debate it. So uh, excited to hear his uh, take on this and um, on this topic. But I 
I want to wait till he's back with us to uh, try it out, <laughs> um, to chat about it. But, um, hmm. Well, maybe we'll give him a minute to figure out the technical issues. Uh, chat, talk about. I don't know. You listen to anything good uh, in the reptile world lately? Uh, not, not so much. Huh? Man, that's bad. I, yeah, I haven't. Uh, I just got too much going on. I'm trying to. Trying to take care of my projects right now, and mm-hmm. just uh, be be successful on multiple fronts, and just taking my time. I just yeah. and then like new job stuff, and oh, you know, yeah. you yeah. know, I know how that goes. Yeah. You have a commute though, don't you? Do you not do podcasts on your commute? Huh? Mm, I mean, I listen to music. Mm-hmm. I just don't find. You know, like, I don't know, man. Like, I, I guess maybe leaving work, I can listen to podcasts, but going to work, I don't. I don't mm-hmm. know why. I don't, I don't, I think I prefer to listen to, to music on the way to work. Yeah. Um, I get on kicks. I, I was listening to music today uh, instead of, the, I did listen to a little bit of a podcast, but um, I, uh, Eric and Owen NPR did uh, a couple cool episodes recently. They did uh, Herp History um, with, uh, oh man, now of course I'm going to blank on the name. <laughs> um, Trumbauer, Craig Trumbauer. I believe that's who it was. <laughs> good was job, good, dude. That was a good one. Yeah, he, he good. did a, good, good, good recovery. <laughs> I've been catching up on some of the shows of our, our I, I don't know, it's really great hearing hearing the stories from the old, you know, the, I won't say old guys, but the, the pioneers, you know, the ones who have been around for a while and been doing this their whole lives. So mm-hmm. that was cool to hear his stories. And it kind of, uh, it's my favorite. I think that's probably one of more of my favorite things is hanging out with kind of old school guys and listening to tell stories about yeah. stuff. It's kind of yeah. fun. Kind of sparked my uh, interest in reconnecting with some of those pioneer guys in my life so i uh, reached out to louis porus uh who was he started zoo herp he, he moved from florida <laughs> to utah and started zoo herp out here and i remember as like a teenager going to his shop and just my jaw would hit the floor they had so much cool stuff there and then he was just a really cool guy he would take me into the venomous room i think even though he wasn't supposed to you know right. and let me check out everything he'd like just a minute let me make sure everything's in its cages you know because and and he just had just an incredible collection and i mean it was just like sky's the limit there you know and yeah uh, and so i reached out to him and he responded he remembered me it was pretty cool but he hadn't made the connection that i was that you know dorky kid coming into a shop versus uh you know me now uh, with the the guy who wrote wrote a couple books so he's like oh yeah. that's cool to make that connection you know kind of put the two pieces together and i'm like oh if you're you know, ever ever want to go out herp and he's like well i'm in my 70s i don't make it out too much I'm like, what <laughs> how did how did i age but you and you aged as well like i thought, <laughs> I thought you'd just be the same age as you were when i was a, a kid you know so oh yeah. my god that's yeah. awesome but yeah he sent me a bunch of articles and we've just kind of been uh conversing back and forth on on email so that's cool it's been cool to reconnect yeah yeah but where we're going out looking for con color he kind of did a lot of work with con color and there was a cool reptiles article that he published uh with him and uh oh, gary 
Gary? Yeah. I can't I can't help you. Who's oh. the jungle Shewitt? Gordon. Oh Gordon, Gordon Shewitt. Shewitt? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who we who we met, right? Yeah, we, we met. Yeah. 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 Hey, right. there we go. That's okay. Sorry about that. Oh no worries. No worries. That's what we're I I hear an echo though. Do you hear that? Echo. <laughs> yeah, the sorry, the headphone is having a bit of an issue. Okay. I only hear it when we talk and not when you talk, so maybe that'll work out, but Okay. Yeah. Maybe uh if if you're not talking you can mute and then it won't echo. But yeah. Alright. Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm I'm fooling around with the blue Oh. <laughs> Something happened there. <laughs> oh no. Just when you think you're uh, you're okay with the technical issues, <laughs> we're right back in it. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. But yeah, uh, kind of reconnecting with him, hearing those stories, getting the you know some uh, remembering his stories with the uh, con color, the midget fader rattlesnakes mm-hmm. and stuff. So that was really cool. Oh, can you hear gosh. me now? Yeah, yeah, no way. Okay, sorry the. I have no idea what happened. It wigged out and was it was connected, but no sound was coming out or going in. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah. Well, we, we got so. you now, so that that's good. <laughs> well, Sorry about that. <laughs> oh, no worries, no worries. It's how it goes. We're used to this, I guess. So you can't have it uh, too perfect or just get too comfortable, right? I was going to say, you can edit that out, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, welcome to the show, Chris. Uh, thanks for Thank being you. here. Um, yeah. Why don't you kind of tell us how you fit in uh, herpetoculture and and what you do? So I think I've got that pretty typical origin story, like most people, you know, mm-hmm. obsessed with dinosaurs as a kid. And then, you know, I grew up in the Steve Irwin, Jeff Corwin area or yeah. era. So, um, you know, always watching that all day long had the stereotypical like seven-year-old kid the 10 gal and the garter snake and actually kept it alive for a while before it died in brumation but um then you know at 10 my parents decided to get me a ball python Uh um which you had supportive parents that sound you know you you don't hear that too often like i i yeah i had the same thing just really supportive parents yeah i they i was really lucky you know it was one of those things where um he w- the snake was 14 at the time. I still have him. He actually mm-hmm. turns 30 today. Oh, I wow. have his actual hatch date. But, um, oh, nice. I've cool. had him this whole time. And um, mm-hmm. one of those things like, um, you know, parents always very supportive. Um, at times, I think they kind of regret that now that they know <laughs> what my life has turned into. But, um, <laughs> you know, tried yeah. to do the whole, um, you know, as far as the hobby goes, tried to do the whole, you know, get into morphs and breeding, getting into some of that stuff, realizing not really my thing, but I just, Mm -hmm. I really enjoy keeping. Mm -hmm. Um, and even more so, I just, I really enjoy, as I like to call them dirt snakes. I like the little Brown things, you know, um, (laughs) (laughs) diadem snake, rubber boa, things like that. So yeah, keep a little bit of everything. So, yeah, no, I like that. I, I like it when, you know, people that ha- find their own niche and or nipper and kind of go Thank after you. that. That's cool. Yeah. Very yeah. nice. Um, all right. Well, uh, so you had the idea to discuss minimum cage sizes and, and kind of mm-hmm. those recommendations that are out there and kind of the, 
the uh, moving target, I guess, if you will. <laughs> so yep. we'll, we'll talk about the pros and cons of having uh, minimum cage size recommendations. So, um, yeah, let's uh, get into it and go ahead and do a coin flip here. So Chuck and I will uh, flip the coin to see who gets to debate you. So go ahead and call that one. And what the, what the hell was me? that? That's a, that was a flip. That's heads. <laughs> it's tails. Oh, that was... <laughs> uh, I apologize about that. Well, um, I'm I'm feeling all right. My tooth's not bugging me too bad, so maybe I'll. You're gonna I'll go do with this. this? That, all that's right. all right with you, yeah. No, I. <laughs> okay, I, and then know. now we'll flip, and Chris, you can call this one to see uh, what side you get. Ooh, let's go tails. Tails, it's tails again. So <laughs> you you win that uh, toss. So. Um, I'll let you pick your side and whether you want to go first or, or let me go first. So. Um, hmm. I'm trying to, what would be the best way to word the side for this one? Um, if, if you think, you know, giving uh, minimum cage size re- oh, requirements okay. is, is a good thing or not so great. I, yeah. I'll take the, I'll be the, the devil's advocate and I'll say that a minimum size is a bad thing. Okay. Okay. And I'll go with the. Uh, that it's a it's it's good to have have that that recommendation for okay well do you want to lead us off or do you want me to i'll let you go first you're gonna you're gonna chuck me huh yep (laughs) all right (laughs) okay well um so when when you when you're keeping reptiles you need some kind of standard something to measure off of you know and and i think um that varies, uh, and it has varied from time to time. And and uh, but I, I do think that it's in, it's it's a good thing to give people a place to start, you know. And so we've we've got a lot of uh, information out there on different reptiles and care sheets and things like that. And and a lot of time it is left to the keeper to decide what they what they want to do. And I think a lot of people probably keep smaller than what's recommended and and things like that. But I, I guess I, I think people it's human nature to kind of want some direction and some you know starting points at least and so you might fudge it a little and be like okay they recommend you know a four by two cage and I've got a four by eighteen inch cage and so I'm going to go with that and and then you keep them and you're like okay this is working out pretty good or you're like well they seem a little cramped or they're trying always trying to move or they're always rubbing their nose and so I'm going to go up so I think uh, you know as long as people are are cognizant that that might change or that might be different depending on maybe the individual animal or the different species you keep or the person who wrote the care sheet you know uh, sometimes we we get into those kind of things and we look back and and we're like man this was some bad advice on that care sheet so I'm going to change that up so I think as long as people are willing to be a student of the serpent as uh, the pod father would say um that we can um be okay with those cage size requirements and uh they're definitely a, a reasonable jumping off point for for most keepers and and a lot of at least the commonly kept species out there so i i think i'd start out that way yeah, and I would say I, I agree with you on a lot of that. Um, as far as I think it's a great jumping off point, you know, um, because as far as that goes, you know, like using 
we'll use ball pythons because they're just the ugly redheaded stepchild. Um, you know, the four by two by two is a really, really common suggestion that I see. Now, kind of where I come with the against portion, so to speak, is, um, you know, where I think when you go to these care guides online and you see that they say minimum for a ball python is the four by two by two, mm-hmm. they're leaving out a lot of different aspects of the growth portion of that animal's life. They're leaving out a lot of different things where I think kind of like you said, student of the serpent. Um, I am a big believer that everything in herpetoculture has a spectrum, whether that is the individual animal um, having some kind of a special reason why it may need a smaller environment, whether that, that animal is in kind of like a growth phase of its life where, you know, it's kind of becoming the norm where you will go onto these Facebook groups and you see, you know, baby corn snake, what's my, what size enclosure do you recommend? And people instantly say, Oh, it needs a four by two by two. Well, I, I'm pretty sure we all know if you take that little bitty baby hatchling corn snake shoved in a four by two, it's going to have some issues, Hmm. you know? So I think that even though those minimums are really great, people also need to, remember that there's there's that growth stage where they don't need a four by two where maybe it is appropriate to have an animal in let's say a 20 gallon a 40 gallon a 60 gallon something smaller may be appropriate for that point in the animal's life Mm -hmm. you know yeah yeah no i think that's a, a good point um we're getting a little bit of feedback i'm not sure you just hearing a little uh feedback from your not feedback but like kind of a What's the what's the word? Static, yeah, static from uh, from your hmm. input, but hopefully that'll go away. <laughs> okay, ah, still there, but anyway, I'll I'll kind of move on to the yeah, I'll, I'll address uh, what you said there. Um, I think Sorry. Um, you know what I can see is you know if you if you're recommending and and I agree, you know you don't need to keep uh, a juvenile or hatchling snake in its eventual full size enclosure and it would probably fare poorly like you said but i think um people need to uh have have that you know at least have the resources or or have a plan for getting that eventual size because i think a lot of times people think well it's small now i can house it now and then they you know so they buy that baby reticulated python thinking i can keep it in a four by two and then uh you know it's uh 12 feet long and they're scrambling to figure out how to cage it and so i think if you have that adult size uh cage size requirement or or recommendation um from the get-go then they can be they can have that in mind saying okay i need this cage down the road and uh if if i don't you know if people don't consider that and they think well i've got time i'll just get this and put it in a 20 gallon now and then down the road i'll be able to make that room size enclosure that usually doesn't happen and they're usually trying to rehome that retic after a few years because they grow so quickly so i think um letting people know from the get-go this is what the size will be and this is the size and you know anytime i think uh uh a breeder will justify and say well yeah just as long as down the road you'll be able to do that you have to make that clear you need this in what two years or one year you know you're gonna have to have this 
eight or 12 foot cage for your reticulated python or whatever you know the minimum size would be for a retic i don't know that's very difficult but i think you know folks like uh Barchek, you know, showing his uh, big, he used to keep those in, you know, the tubs and very small mm-hmm. enclosures. I mean, you know, maybe he'd get them out and they'd move around and maybe they're, they're okay. But, you know, long term, that, that tub is not a great idea. But I think, you know, so many people saw that old school, you know, here you can keep a million snakes as long as you have all these tubs, you know. And so mm-hmm. people think, oh, Barchek got it to work. I can do that. Now he's shifted since and, and opened up his reptile zoo. And now he has a room size enclosure for his, you know, reticulated python. He's got trees for it to climb. You know, it's a good, what, eight, 12 foot cage uh, tall. And then, you know, fairly good size inside. He's got water elements and, and trees. And so, you know, that's more like along the lines of what we should be saying. Okay, here's here's what this snake really needs and and that's probably a little small for it you know to be uh, but maybe not maybe they don't need that you know room size but you know just giving people that idea that this is important that they be able to perform their natural life functions in our care and we give them as big as we can um, rather Mm -hmm. than I think a lot of times people focus on that minimum size requirement and think that's the optimum size and, and it mm-hmm. may may or may not be you know you might do better with a smaller cage like you said or, or it might be bigger but at least it kind of gives you that idea of what you'll need for that animal for the long term and that's key i think a lot of times we gloss over that in in favor of getting the animal now um mm-hmm. we'll get it now and then worry about that that's future justin's problem to worry about how i'm going to keep that snake you know and so yeah. and i think we all get into that problem at one point or another in our keeping careers i don't know if anybody's ever kept everything they've ever owned optimally you know or or as as good as the the minimum size requirements suggest but um, yeah. it's good to have that on the forefront of your mind when you get the animal yeah, I think it's I think it's really important to go into any animal kind of thinking like you said thinking that 2 3 4 5 years down the line thinking about how big they're going to get. Um for the sake of the argument, I feel the need to say I am not like a rack or a tub keeper. I am someone who generally does try to keep in larger than is needed for that point in their life. Mm-hmm. Um but I think part of the issue that we have is that we reach a point where even though like four by two by two, for example, just to spit out a number is considered a really good minimum for, um, for like a lot of species, there are certain places where you'll go and you'll see like, for example, a Brettles Python, the cage requirement from some of these really popular, um, you know, um, influencers let's say is they're recommending eight by seven by four as a minimum for a brettles python mm-hmm. which if you ask me i mean i have a brettles granted he's not full grown but at the same time eight by f- seven by four is a room-sized enclosure that's i'm sure thousands of dollars mm-hmm. to buy that enclosure now where now granted a brettles is not you know an entry-level animal like a corn snake a king snake a leopard gecko but at what point are the standards that we are requiring becoming preventative for people entering the hobby Mm. 
you know, so like if you, I mean, I, you know, I've listened to you guys talk on podcasts before and I'm sure a lot of us started keeping our animals in aquaria, you know, things like that. And I think even though the times are evolving and we are under, we know so much more about our reptiles than we ever have. I think there's still a point where when people are saying that that entry level to have the bare minimum humane um, housing for your animal is, you know, the four by two by two, the thermostat, the mist king, the all the bells and whistles, which I don't think anyone here will say that's a bad thing to have. I think we would all agree that those are net positives as a whole, but it's still preventative to people if it is... um, what is it? If the entry level for keeping a normal ball python is a $1,200 investment altogether, you know what I mean? And we're at a point in the hobby where I feel like, you know, we have thousands and thousands of animals available at any time. And unfortunately they're not all going to go into that four by two setup. That is ideal. We know that. And it's unfortunately part of what is going to happen if people want the animal they're going to get it regardless but i think that there is a very massive disconnect between the rack keeping side of the hobby and then the so advanced that even a zoo won't meet those standards side of the hobby and i think there's this entire gray area in the middle of is you know let's say is a 70 gallon ideal for a ball python no but would I rather see a ball python in a 70-gallon than a shoebox-sized rack? Absolutely. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so yeah. that's kind of where I come at from a lot of what I'm seeing, especially with a lot of the influencers pushing onto you know new people into the hobby that this is what you have to have for it to be humane, which it's, it's progressing the husbandry, which is a net positive. Mm-hmm. But I still think that at times the barrier to entry is almost getting set so high now that it is preventative to new people coming into the hobby. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with, you know, with that in, in large part, I think, uh, as we, you know, you wonder how many of those recommendations or changes are, are reflecting, you know, the overall health of the animal. I, I think, mm. you know, a lot of times when we say minimum cage size, um, <laughs> you know, what what is that minimum for? Is that minimum just mm. to have them survive or to, you know, have them be have restrained them or something? Yeah. Or is it to mm. have them thrive? And I think anytime you're trying to replicate uh, – a natural environment in a box, you're going to fall short, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think as, you know, if you're, if you're concerned about the welfare of the animal and you can see it, um, doing, you know, natural things. I mean, I, I always got a kick out of people calling arboreal cages that were two feet high, you know, arboreal cages, (laughs) like anything that's (laughs) arboreal is probably at least up 15, 20 feet in the air, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and to, to, to suggest that a two foot or three foot or even four foot tall cage is arboreal is kind of laughable, right? I mean, nobody would consider that a a tree uh, enclosure unless you've got a room, you know, a 20 foot tall room with a tree growing in the middle of it or something, you know, that, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So 
I mean, obviously we have to shortchange the animal a little bit for what it's getting in the wild. But I think, you know, pythons are a great example of that as pythons in the wild don't move a ton. You know, they, they might move between shelter sites or between where they're setting up to feed. But I think that's kind of born out of necessity. Um, I, I always wonder this because there was a study done on, on um, a, a Darwin carpet python that they radio tracked this individual and they found it in the same tree hollow for over a year. And so the thing just sat in this tree hollow. And I, I assume that, you know, prey was coming to it. Maybe it left and came back when the researchers weren't tracking it, but they, they got a lot of uh, fixes on this animal and it was always in that same tree hollow. So, you know, would they do they need to move? That was that's always been a question of mine. I need to have some kind of physiologist on here to to discuss this with if if pythons actually need to exercise or move around. Now, I think you know we can balance that out if uh, if we're not overfeeding the animal. And I think most captive pythons are overfed. Most captive reptiles are overfed. You know, their reptiles are very good at uh, being efficient you know compared to mammals at least but you know of course some species like you know like a bearded dragon or or other lizards have a more high metabolism and need to be fed more frequently and need to be kept in larger cages so they can move around um yeah it's it's uh i mean we we've got to take that into consideration that when we're trying to replicate nature in a box we're going to fall short but can you get those necessary things and uh, from their natural history to keep them happy and healthy and, and, and thriving as best we can in that environment? And I think, you know, for most species, we can meet that need. And, we, and you know, it's been proven over time that these animals do pretty well in our care, especially Brettles pythons. I mean, if you look on Morph Market and, and the carpet python section, more Brettles carpets are available than, than most other uh, species or subspecies. Now, I think people have in their minds that Brettles pythons are, or Centralian carpets are, you know, an eight-foot species. But in, you know, mm-hmm. in, in a lot of studies that have been done, the, the average size is around six feet. So they're not much bigger than a jungle carpet or, a, you know, an average coastal carpet. We, we have that maximum size in our minds, too. Like this thing will, will get eight or, ten, you know, nine, ten feet or something like that when that's not necessarily the case. Of course, you can get them to that size. Yeah. But an average size of six foot suggests that, you know, once they hit that six foot mark, they're going to slow their growth. That's going to be, you know, close to their their adult size. And uh, does that mean we shouldn't plan for, a you know, a, an eight foot snake? You know, maybe yeah. maybe that's a, um, something that we should keep in mind. And we have that size so the snake can stretch fully out. That's kind of one of the the recommendations they use in the zoo, you know, if your animal can stretch fully out. So their cage requirement size is for, for, you know, that length that they can stretch out comfortably in their enclosure and not have to be wrapped around, you know, in, in some way. Uh, but, and, and 
two, I think we maybe underutilize space in our enclosures. Mm-hmm. If we have big enclosures, there's a lot of dead, empty airspace. Now, if this was a like a fish tank, you'd have you know them using every every bit of where the water is in our enclosures. We have to keep that in mind. Give them you know shelves or branches or things to climb around on, especially for uh, a centralian carp that could probably be considered largely arboreal in nature you know they're generally found Mm -hmm. in trees in the wild or up on rock faces or cliffs or something so yeah yeah and i think a a really big part of it too um i forget which podcast it was on but they were talking about how when you're thinking about the enclosure size really breaking down the volume of space that the snake takes up in that enclosure yeah like you know I've got a rubber boa that lives in a Sterilite box, you know, and I could fit probably 50 to 100 of him in this little bitty five-gallon box because he's just, you know, so tiny. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if I take my blood python and try and put her in the same box, she's going to fill it up one time, you know. So I think part of it as well is going into, you know, how much space does that animal really have in the enclosure, but also kind of like you were saying, the how well are we using that space in the enclosure because so often i've had people even to myself tell me oh you should really aspire for the setup i have and then i'm like okay let let me see the setup they show you the setup and it's a four by two by two for a bearded dragon and not a single thing in that cage goes more than six inches off the ground it's got 18 inches of height with nothing going on and as far as i'm concerned i would so much rather see a beardy in a you know a 60 a 70 gallon that is tiered is well decorated it can climb it can actually get some height over having granted the increased floor space of the four by two but only being able to get five six inches off the ground Mm -hmm. you know so i think there's a that but then also the other thing kind of uh going back a little bit that i think a lot of people need to take into account is a snake is not a snake is not a snake. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There's so much variation between individuals within a species, but also just obviously between the species themselves. Mm -hmm. So to say that, you know, to I've had so often people try and, you know, blanket, well, Oh, there's no such thing as a large rack that could be, you know, um, that would be usable for a snake. And, you know, there are so many fossorial species that would really, that could thrive in that kind of an environment or in a, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? There's just different setups that will benefit different animals in different ways. And I think that as a whole, herpetoculture needs to be a little bit more accepting of that. You know what I mean? I think that the point that there's always an exception to the rule, you know what I mean? The, yeah. Yeah, I think you bring up some really good examples, too, of uh, species that, you know, you could keep in a lot of different ways. Now, you know, rubber boa is a primary example because they spend most of their life in a fossorial, you know, underground environment. They're only out on the surface maybe, you know, a couple months out of the year. The rest of the time they're down probably deep under the, you know, within cracks and, and under the surface of the, the earth. And um with uh, where I served on uh, Lucas Lee's uh, committee, so I was there for his mm-hmm. defense, and he was talking about Womas and and you know mentioning the 
the research by uh, Dr. Melissa Bruton on um, womas in the wild, and you know, in radio track studies, they found them in burrows seventy percent of the time. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I asked Lucas, like, how would you replicate that in a captive setting? You know, if 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 you were expecting this animal to be in a burrow with you know, maybe 90% humidity, Mm -hmm. 70% of the time, you know, a lot of people think, oh, Womas are desert pythons. They need a desert environment. And so you've got a, you know, like you said, like just a, the cage floor and, and a layer of sand and okay, they're good. Give them a hot spot and they're good to go. But where, you know, if we learn about their natural history, we know that they need a burrow and they need, you know, a humid hide or if, if you want to call it that. So, and I was thinking, how can I improve my Womas, you know, how I'm keeping them. And, uh, you know, I've got some, some ideas, but like maybe the majority of your cage be set up similar to a burrow or give them hmm. options to move down underground. I, I, uh, remember talking with Frank Reedy's, Reed's, uh, Reedy's? however he pronounce his last name, Reedus. But he was, uh, he, you know, he was famous for kind of revolutionizing monitor keeping and keeping a bunch of different monitors. But he kept a lot of snakes before he kept monitors, like king snakes and things like that, and he did really well with those. Um, but he was telling me that he built a cage for a king snake that was basically uh, kind of a cage on top of a garbage can, and the animals could go down the whole, you know, the length, the garbage can was kind of filled with different rocks and, and, and sticks and, and things. So the animals could move down through the cracks between the rocks and sticks all the way down to the bottom and, you know, back up again. And he said they spent the majority of their time in that subterranean environment. Now that's not very fun to, if you're a keeper with a big cage, you want to be able to see your animal. And, and so that kind of, you know, goes against what we're trying to accomplish if we're looking to replicate their natural environment, um, which is, you know, of course, the big challenge with fossorial species is how am I going to see this thing if I give it what it needs in a a cage? And so I think a lot of times those recommendations of cage sizes don't take those factors into account, especially for the, you know, specific needs of the, the animals. So, I mean... You know, it, I, I think that's something we need to think of, and, and that probably needs to be a part of those minimum recommendations. But I think we need some, also some bright minds to kind of figure out how to provide that. I know in in yeah. zoos, I've seen like they use a pane of glass, and, and and they have you know soil underneath that, so like a rubber boa can go under that pane of glass and and get the security and micro environment that it needs while also being visible to the public who can see it through the glass pane and, and, you know, see what a rubber boa looks like doing what it does naturally, you know, sitting under a rock most of the year. So, you know, and how, how to, how to, uh, improve that, you know, I think we could improve our, uh, care sheets and, and minimum cage and, and, I guess we also need to think of minimum needs for the animal mm-hmm. and what, what it's going to need to to do well and, and kind of have what it might have in the wild and is as good as we can provide that in a box. Yeah. And I definitely think that kind of going back a little bit, like you were saying, 
kind of just taking the natural history of the species into account. Like, mm -hmm. I don't think anyone in their right mind would ever keep a Kribo or an indigo snake in a tub. I mean, there's just, there's so many reasons why doing something like that would be incredibly inhumane. Yeah. But kind of like you're saying, there needs to be some acceptance within the community that with some species like rubber boa, calabars, rosy boas, that that is acceptable. And that there are just ways that we need to tweak how we keep to better suit the kept, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. But then also, I think that there's also a way to keep without saying that, you know, if you have a jungle carpet python, you're depriving it if it has anything less than basically half of a bedroom. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Which mm -hmm. I feel like is kind of where a lot of things are heading nowadays. Yeah, that's true. There is kind of a lot of shaming if you're not keeping it yeah. like like I'm keeping it then you're not a good keeper and you need to up your game to match mine kind of mentality I, I think that's true that we exactly that. and I and I really think there's also this so I know you work in virology correct mm -hmm. yeah okay so um, I believe I've heard you talk on um, other on past podcasts about you guys have a Sorry, cat appeared. Um, about um, you guys have rodents in labs, correct? Yeah, yeah. So I'm sure you're familiar with. I work in a rodent lab in a similar capacity at a university. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure that there's also points where we can accept that in situations where perhaps space may not be 100% where it should be that there are other things that can be done in a scenario such as providing different forms of enrichment other things like that that in situations where maybe space is not maximized as much as possible that we are still giving things to those animals to do mm -hmm. that are going to then allow them to display natural behaviors like yeah. even my smallest you know I have one baby rack it only houses rats and corns and kings things like that it still has substrate, hides, branches, leaf litter. They still have all of that. Mm -hmm. It's just in a smaller environment. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's something as well that people could take into account. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, I was I was going to use another example of, uh, so I was in Costa Rica last year mm -hmm. and, and we saw um, a uh, Bothrops asper, a uh, uh, hognose viper or I'm, you know, yep. I'm not sure the common name but there um this thing was in it was in a little small forest preserve area i went there mainly to see the green basilisk but they're like oh, i said any snakes you know have you seen any snakes today and the guides are very helpful they're like oh yeah go to this point on the map and you'll see a snake there he's like because you know there's there's uh police tape around it and so i went there and they had this thing you know police tape around the viper and it was just sitting on the ground and it, i guess it had been there for long enough to discover and then put up police tape around it you know so it's not yeah. moving a ton yeah. and you know it's it's designed to sit and wait you know and you talk about uh, blood pythons and things that are ambush predators that need you know a specific environment and they do very well but they probably don't need a room size enclosure i mean they they might mm -hmm. be okay in one but they're also more suited to kind of that, uh, you know, area where they just need to curl up and wait for food, you know. And as long as you're not overfeeding them, and they'll probably sit in the same spot for for most of their you know time there. And you know, granted, I don't know a lot about blood pythons and and haven't kept them uh, 
per se, but, uh, you know, just kind of that idea of the sit and wait predators. Now, how do we, how do we account for the times that they do move? You know, like with the Woma example, you know, they sit in a cage, but then they, they move, you know, half a mile sometimes to, to move Mm -hmm. to a, a different spot or to go hunt or something like that, you know? And for things like, uh, like an indigo, like you mentioned, man, those things move a ton. They cover a lot of ground and they're active. And I mean, I thought any, you know, people keeping coach whips in captivity, I, I always thought it would be cool to have a coach whip, but I thought I just wouldn't, you could never do it justice. You know, a room size enclosure would be too small for a coach whip. You know, they cover a lot of ground very quickly too. Um, so, you know, again, I think when we're looking at minimum cage size, we need the the minimum that can can allow them to perform some of their functions, and, and then we need to look for other options outside of the cage. You know, do you, can you take them outside, put them in a in a big uh, like cattle trough, swim pool type size enclosure, and let them run around in the sun or, or kind of get their uh, I don't energy out or something. You know, get a, let them do some laps outside in the the natural sunlight. Um, so. Again, you know, I think it's good to have that jumping off point, but we need to think about the natural history of the animal. And I, mm-hmm. I we've always kind of encouraged that here to, to learn about yep. what they do in the wild. And for a lot of stuff, we don't know a lot about them in the wild, you know, other than some, you know, sparse uh, observations in the field for some species, other species, we know a ton about, you know, people have done radio tracking studies or they, they followed them around and kind of saw, have seen what they do on a day-to-day basis. But mm-hmm. as long as you're actively, you know, searching for information, using the best and newest updated information and making the best decisions cage wise you can, I think, you know, having that, um, recommendation at least to start out with is, is a very useful and, and helpful thing. Uh, mm-hmm. I think, I don't know if I just am repeating myself or I got back off, off the topic. Uh, I apologize. No, I you're good. Focused on remembering what the name of the, the snake I saw in Costa Rica, <laughs> <laughs> which kind of brought that out. But, um, yeah, that, yeah, I don't know. Any, I mean, I I agree with a lot of what you say. I mean, honestly, I think that the biggest thing that like my biggest takeaway from the entire debate is just that there's whenever you talk about like the minimum cage size, I think that the biggest thing that people need to take into consideration again is just the how broad that gray area is Mm -hmm. in between rack keeper and zoo enclosure. And that there are lots of ways to meet that. I'm not sure. Are you familiar? Have you ever heard of the five freedoms of animal welfare? Yeah. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard people discussing that. Um, So I once upon a time worked in an animal shelter and it was one of our big things there. mm -hmm. And it's basically freedom from hunger and thirst, discomfort and pain, freedom from disease, ability to express normal behaviors and freedom from fear and distress. Mm Mm-hmm. So a lot of the times that's kind of something I like to go back to where even though kind of going back to some of the history in my own animal keeping career, that there are other ways to meet the needs of the kept beyond just space. 
if yeah. that makes sense. Oh, which is something that I feel is becoming very lost nowadays that, you know, there are so many things you can do, whether it's just redecorating the cage, giving, you know, enrichment, whether it's scent, food based, things like that, mm-hmm. that can enrich and provide more than just space. Because I think there's becoming this notion that if you just give it the most space you humanly can, it will automatically have a great experience. Mm-hmm. Which is not entirely true. Yeah, yeah, that's a very. So I think that's my, that's my big takeaway from everything is that mm-hmm. there are lots of there's a lot of ways to skin a cat. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, you know. <laughs> Pardon the term, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was I'll, gonna say skin a snake, but you know, <laughs> will not. <laughs> yeah. Um, the that that example of the rodents is a really great one. We did a study once where we thought that. Uh, exposure in utero to a virus was causing hyperactivity and so we wanted to measure how much the different animals you know either born Mm -hmm. to an infected mother or not were you know how far they were moving and how active they were and these we thought these hyperactive animals are going to be much more active but uh it didn't turn out to be the case maybe because they would jump off the running wheel mid you know they'd get distracted or (laughs) jump off or something i don't know but um we found that mice would run about uh, five miles two to five miles in a night and Mm -hmm. you know if if given that running wheel because we had one that you know clicked every time it went around so you could see how how many revolutions it was and calculate the distance but they were running several miles a night um Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know which is pretty impressive for a little mouse and so like you said if you can meet those kind of needs or give them that environmental stimulus or something to to help them uh, engage in natural behaviors um that uh, that can go a long way and and space is not I, I think you summed it up perfectly you know it's not just space it's how you use that space and how you meet the natural requirements of the animal that's probably the most important so I think I'll give you the win on this one that's a that's a great summary again. <laughs> But I, I, I definitely think it's a, an important uh, discussion. And, you know, we, we often think, like, who who sets the rules? or and, and it's kind of a lawless, outlaw society anyway, you know. You yeah. look at things like falconry, and there's a lot of set rules and, you know, mm-hmm. and, and things that you have to conform to to even be a member of the community. And it's, you know, completely the opposite here, where everybody's kind of doing their own thing and and. and doing whatever they think they they need to do to meet their goals some of which are you know make money or to you know or to keep animals a few animals as best they possibly can be kept you know and give them Mm -hmm. everything their heart desires so you know there's there's definitely uh pros and cons to that the the different and it's all a spectrum yeah yeah exactly but I think as long as you have that animal's welfare in mind and you consider those, you know, the five things that you mentioned more than just like, I need to give it food and water. You need to, you know, think about those other things. And, um, yeah, as long as you're have that animal's welfare in mind, then I think you're on the right track. So, yeah. Well, thanks so much. That was a really yeah. a good discussion and some enlightening uh, topics there for sure. Um, Thank you for having me on. Yeah, definitely. So we kind of like to close out the show with, you know, some any observations in the herpetological world, uh, you know, different things you've seen or read that were interesting or that sparked your interest. 
Um, I saw uh, there was some research done with uh, geckos, and they showed kind of on topic a little bit that they could recognize their own smell and and their mm-hmm. and that of unrelated individuals. And so um, I think about this a lot, you know, with cage cleaning, you know, because people recommend different things for cleaning cages, and um, I've seen you know a wide spectrum. I remember one guy used to just every time the snake made a mark he would just get in there and scrub it and it was like the thing was living in an insane asylum you know the white walls and no no uh stimuli other than the uh white walls that had been f- freshly bleached because the animal you know tried to mark its territory or something burning from the bleach. <laughs> no. uh. i i you know it's probably not that far but yeah it's not not and and then um talked about natural history ops the same guy was talking about not natural his history observations that this species lived on a pile of its own shed skins and feces and things like that. And I'm thinking there's a little disconnect here between how you're keeping it and how you observed it in the wild. And, you know, thinking about these geckos, they, they would, uh, expose them to different smells and the geckos would have different behaviors. And the, the researchers concluded that they could recognize their own smell. They would go to their own like feces and kind of smell those and then come back and compare it, you know, or something like that. So it was kind of an interesting uh, study for sure. But I do think that chemo sensory um, type uh, behavior that's very prevalent, especially in reptiles, like, and, and enrichment can be as simple as giving them like a piece of a shed skin from, um, uh, you know, the same species or something that's housed in a different cage and you can get them kind of excited about exploring and, and their environment and things like that. So, Oh, I'm, I mean, I was going to say, I mean to my snakes, if I'm feeding, you know, the false water cobra and I've got a mouse thought out, I will take that mouse water and drip it along the <laughs> vents of other tanks and let it drip into the tanks and get, even if they're not feeding, they're yeah. getting that mouse smell Stimulus. in the enclosure. And yep. Mm-hmm. Kind yeah, of torture I mean, them a little bit, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's natural. Get I mean, they're moving. not, they're not eating every time they smell their prey either. You know, it's, you know, exactly. for predators to actually have a successful hunt, you know, I guess it varies between, different species and you know tactics and things but yeah, especially those sit and wait predators could can wait a long time before they get a meal you know yeah. oh yeah yeah definitely but I, I i don't know i thought that was an interesting study that uh, to show the um oh i forgot to mention too i was on uh, brian cusco's uh, he er, uh, he did a live stream and had me on there so we we're talking about the books and research and stuff like that so it was a pretty fun time you can nice see that on youtube or whatever but brian's a he's a he's a really nice guy and does some really cool professional video work you know he filmed uh herpeton and when uh, i spoke uh, at that when uh, alan and um alan rapashi and uh Philippe uh, DeVosier put that on. So that was a cool meeting. Hopefully we get back to those kind of meetings again soon. Yep. Well, any, anything you've heard or seen in the reptile world that's interesting? I mean, honestly, I've been doing a lot um, within my own collection, just kind of testing the waters on some, uh, a couple just cohab things, you know, some mm-hmm. rat snakes, corn snakes, and some larger enclosures. Um, yeah. 
I've my biggest project has been I've been working with um, a trio of Russian tortoises for a few years and just kind of because the the stereotype with tortoises is you you don't keep the male with the females they'll aggressively breed them and I've had this group together year round for almost three years now and I've had very little if any issue other than the occasional shove over the food but I've noticed some really interesting behaviors with them like the um uh, I forget if it, which one of the females it was, but the one female would go up to the male and would, like, turn her head and, like, rub it along the carapace of the other tortoise while it was asleep. Hmm. And I did some looking, and apparently that has been noted in sulcata tortoises as being, like, a social, like, recognition-type behavior, mm-hmm. um, which I personally found interesting because this is actually a pair of Russians that I have that does produce eggs that I have hatched out in the past. Um, So just noticing some social recognition between them. Um, I've got a small group of garter snakes that I've been keeping and cohabbing. So watching that social dynamic between them and some Nerodia. Um, And then I last summer uh, picked up a female monkey tailed skink to go with my male. So Mm -hmm. being able to watch the, um, just the social interaction between those two and honestly just how borderline mammalian they act Mm -hmm. um and just the way that like the male will actually bite into a piece of fruit or something and they'll be at the food dish and if it's a particularly choice piece of fruit or vegetable he'll actually hold it in his mouth and kind of turn his head and offer it to the female because they have they did bond very readily after I got them. So just really spending a lot of time kind of working on some target training with a few species of mine. Um, like I have a water cobra from Dr. Loafman mm-hmm. um, that he told me was target trained and he very much is. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, that working on target training, my monitor. So, you yeah. know, just stuff like that and kind of doing other things to increase what they can do outside of their enclosure and also providing them more stimuli within the enclosure has been a lot of what I've been trying to focus on myself. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Cool. I, I like that, you know, thought about, uh, the sociality of reptiles. I think, you know, there's mm-hmm. that book, the secret social lives of reptiles. I started reading that. Yep. I haven't made it too far in there. I need to keep reading, but I think there's a lot of unappreciated, uh, social behaviors in, in the reptile world. And, you know, keeping them by themselves is kind of akin to keeping people in, you know, social isolation. It doesn't usually work out very well, you know, and the, you'll get some yeah. kind of antisocial behaviors if you do that too to uh to a social reptile so good to know their natural history and and kind of what to expect with those and and give them help them uh like you said uh, meet their needs by giving them different stimuli and and uh mm-hmm. interactions that's that's cool cool uh yeah. research there yeah definitely yeah all right. Well, um, thanks again for coming on. And, uh, yeah, for thank the you for having discussion. me. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's been great. So uh, we'll have to have you back again. That was a fun topic. Oh, definitely. I'd love to. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you want to put your information out there in case people want to get a hold of you? Yeah, sure. Um, you can always find me on Facebook. Um, I'm not particularly active on there as far as posting. I keep it relatively private. But if anyone wants to find me, um, I'm on Instagram at copperhead.reptilia. 
Um, so if anyone ever wants to reach out to me, like I said, I don't do much breeding. It's mostly just keeping, but I have a lot of weird species, and I'm always happy to talk husbandry of the obscure. So Cool. Yeah, that sounds right up my alley. <laughs> yeah, right on. Definitely. Well, uh, Chuck, you got anything to throw out there or add? Nope. <laughs> you, you've been kind of quiet this time. I have. I've been quiet. Yeah. I am yeah. quiet tonight. Man, it's, I'm tired, it's a, man. Yeah. <laughs> They're I'm right. Tired. It's Thursday. Job it's been a out. week. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, yeah. I got a nap in before this, so I'm feeling a little, you're a little trooper, better than dude. I was earlier. You're, you're a trooper. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening. Uh, we appreciate the Morelia Pythons Radio Network and Eric and Owen and all they do. And uh, check out the other podcasts on the network and uh, we'll catch you again next week for Reptile Fight Club this has been a minimum size cage fight club